Now hear God's word from Matthew chapter 8 as we continue our study in the gospel of Matthew. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshiped him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commandment, commanded as a testimony to them. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask you to guide us into truth as we read about the mighty acts of your son and his authority over all manner of sickness, even over the winds and the waves and the demons in this chapter. We pray that he would reign over us now in this place, in this hour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There has likely been a time in your life where you've looked around and nervously wondered, who's in charge here? Is there anybody in charge? I remember as a young child, a few times being in unsupervised situations with slightly older cousins among a group of kids where it felt like the fabric of civilization was unraveling. I know you know what I'm talking about. Uh, unattended children can go primitive in a heartbeat, right? Uh, Lord of the Flies was, was not a work of fiction. That's a documentary. That, that actually happens if you leave kids to themselves. And so I remember being in a group of cousins and, and there was this one cousin who was just a wild card who'd, who'd say something like, hey, everybody, let's play knives. And like, what? what's knives? I don't know how to play knives. What are the rules of this game? I don't have a knife. And uh, so where do I fit in this game of knives? And everything gets a little ragged. Everything gets a little scary there for a little while until an adult shows up and order is restored. An adult puts an end to the nonsense. Stability returns. It, it's often assumed that all authority is automatically burdensome. Authority is repressive. The very word authority stirs up images of severity and sternness. Authority doesn't seem pleasant until we find ourselves in a state of anarchy where no one is in charge. Maybe you've been in a work situation or on a project where people who are supposed to be in charge uh, are the ones who are ineffective or incapable or missing, and no one knows their place, and nobody knows what needs to be done, and nobody is working together. You need someone to come restore order, to set everyone in their places, to put an end to the nonsense. When authority is effective, it's not frightening, it's not repressive, authority is comforting. Having someone around who knows what they're doing is a protection and a blessing, especially when that person is extremely proficient in addressing all the problems that we need to have addressed. As Jesus comes down from the Sermon on the Mount, as he comes down the mountain after delivering that sermon, Matthew presents Jesus as that capable, effective, powerful, commanding authority. There's no question in the accounts to follow, there's no question who's in charge, who has the competency and the insight, and profoundly, who has the mercy and the wisdom to do exactly what needs to be done in every situation, such that everyone acknowledges his authority. Jesus exudes 
authority, stability, confidence. They marveled at his authority when he was finished speaking on the mountain. We saw this last time in verse 28 of chapter 7. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They knew that this, this teaching has an otherworldly element. This is, this is more confidence and more power than we've ever seen in our lives. And as, as he goes through these next events, everyone addresses him not as that kid from Nazareth or Joseph's son or hey you or sir. They address him as Lord. They call him master or teacher or rabbi. They use these affectionate terms of of honor, these respectful titles that that speak to his command of the situation. Uh, The leper who comes to Jesus says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. There's a centurion who says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed. There's a scribe who comes to Jesus in chapter eight, and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. A disciple, another disciple says, Lord, let me go bury my father. The disciples in the boat, when the storm is raging, they say, Lord, uh, do you, uh, will you save us? We are perishing. And then when Jesus encounters demons, even they acknowledge who he is. And, and, and acknowledge his power. When Jesus confronts the demons, they say, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? The point is, time and time again, Jesus manifests his authority. When he speaks, he has authority over disease. He has authority over the weather. He has authority over demons. He exercises a kind of authority that has only been demonstrated by Yahweh up to this point the authority to cleanse the unclean, the authority to forgive sins. Now Jesus possesses that authority. In every one of these cases, he undermines and overthrows a lesser authority, the dominion of uncleanness, the dominion of sickness, the dominion of natural forces, the dominion of Satan, even the dominion of sin. He subverts and overthrows each one. And so when we read this and we reflect on Jesus and his commanding presence in all of these situations, we come away trusting, yep, that's exactly who I want in charge of everything all the time. I want this man, this savior, this king to reign over all of this. We could use his authority over us and over our seemingly unsolvable problems in our world. We need this king to reign over us. So let's read this series of accounts. I promised you that I would pick up speed. Many of you have asked, are we going to be in Matthew for the rest of our lives? Because we're just taking one verse at a time. Well, the Sermon on the Mount lends to that very slow um, uh, meditative study, but we're going to pick up speed. In fact, today my goal is to do all of chapter 8. So let's read and watch as Jesus' sovereign authority sweeps through every life here, like a breath of fresh air, like a stabilizing, formidable, powerful presence, communicating real order is returning. The grown-ups are back in charge. The people who can command and take, take charge are here and are present. So Matthew begins this uh, new section after the Sermon on the Mount by telling us that Jesus came down from the mountain. 
And we might read that and say, well, of course he came down from the mountain. But every detail is significant. The Holy Spirit does not waste words. Uh, the inspired authors do not waste ink. If they tell us something, it's for a reason. And so when we see Jesus coming down from the mountain, we're reminded of the way that Moses came down from the mountain. When Moses came down from Sinai, he carried two tables of the law, two tablets of the law. The first time that Moses came down from the mountain, remember, he smashed those two tablets because he saw the idolatry of the people. Their community had dissolved into anarchy in Moses' absence, and so Moses is outraged by their, uh, by their behavior, and he smashes the tables of the law. Jesus comes down the mountain. He's not carrying the law because he is the law. He's the embodiment, the physical embodiment, the fulfillment of his father's law. But he will be broken, just as the tables of the law were broken, he will be broken by the disobedience of those he came to save. He is going to absorb in himself the penalty of the broken covenant. Just as Moses broke those two tablets on the mountain, so Jesus is going to be broken on a mountain by being lifted up, raised up in the crucifixion. When Moses descended the mountain, he then led Israel through the wilderness while they rebelled against God's authority and are judged over and over and over. How many times did they sin in the wilderness? Well, Numbers chapter 14 says they sinned, they rebelled 10 times in the wilderness. Numbers 14, 22, they rebelled 10 times. And that's an echo of the 10 plagues on Egypt. Yahweh had performed in Egypt 10 miraculous acts of deliverance for his people. And instead of responding in tenfold worship, in tenfold obedience, Israel responds in tenfold rebellion. They rebelled 10 times. Now, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we see Jesus, the greater Moses, coming down from the mountain, leading a great multitude to march toward Jerusalem with these people. His journey is not full of failure. It's not full of rebellion. His journey is full of healing and restoration. And instead of 10, uh, 10 events of rebellion, 10 failures, Jesus in these chapters performs 10 miraculous acts of healing and restoration. He cleanses a leper he heals a centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He calms the storm. He casts out demons from two possessed men. He heals a paralytic. He raises a dead girl. He heals a woman with a flow of blood. He gives sight to two blind men. And then he heals a mute man who also has a demon. Ten acts of obedience, one right after another in these two chapters. Again, we're not going to study all ten today. We're going to stop um, at the beginning of chapter 9. Uh, but the point is that Jesus is the obedient son of the Father. He does 10 acts of mercy and authority over powers and dominions, over sin and sickness, over uncleanness, that invert the 10 acts of rebellion of Israel, the, who was the disobedient son in the wilderness. Israel was the disobedient son. Jesus comes as faithful Israel. He comes as the faithful son. And the first act he does is to heal a leper. Let's read that again, verse 2. Behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
Leprosy in the Bible is not the same thing that we call leprosy today or Hansen's disease. I was trying to remember this morning if it was uh, Ben-Hur that had that scene with the leper colony in it and, and what we call leprosy today. Uh, you get a certain image of what leprosy is. But leprosy in the Bible, understand, when you read God's law, leprosy could affect people, but it could also get in your clothing and it could get in the walls of your house. So um, whatever, whatever they're referring to as leprosy in the Bible is something different. In fact, we may not even have that condition in our world today, the same condition that the Bible calls leprosy. It, it also may have been, leprosy may have been a wide term to cover any number of fungal infections or ulcers or, or growths. Um, but, but with the result being that, that the uh, person who suffered was noticeably, visibly unclean uh, with sores or with growths <clears throat> or with infection. Whatever physical suffering was brought on by this disease was eclipsed by the extreme social isolation that came with it. Lepers were treated like dead men. Uh, they were completely banished from human society. At the time of Jesus, lepers were barred from entering any walled city. They couldn't come in the city. They could attend synagogue, uh, but they had a little isolated chamber to sit in and they couldn't talk to anybody. They couldn't have anything to do with anybody else. It was illegal to carry on a conversation with a leper, even outside. It was illegal to greet them. No one was to get any closer to them than about four cubits or six feet. One rabbi said that he would not eat an egg sold on a street where a leper had passed by. Another rabbi boasted about how he would throw stones at lepers to keep them away. It was a joke to him. He would, he would run them off with stones. Uh, so they were exiled completely from the life of their people. That would have been the status of this leper when he comes to Jesus. He's alone, he's ostracized, he's outcast, and he's deprived of all human contact. He knows he's supposed to stay away, and yet he comes to Jesus. Somehow, he knows that Jesus is not going to throw rocks at him. Jesus is not going to make fun of him. Jesus is not going to drive him off. And when he comes... He doesn't come assuming anything, and he doesn't come making demands. He comes and worships Jesus. Now, worship is reserved for Yahweh alone. Everybody knows the first two commandments. Only Yahweh receives our worship. And if Jesus were not worthy of such worship, he would have told him, okay, okay, but, but get up. You don't, you don't need to worship me. And yet Jesus receives his worship. Uh, as, as, as the son of God, Jesus uh, receives it. And this, this um, leper says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't, he doesn't ask to be cleansed. He doesn't ask to be healed or helped. He doesn't have a sense of entitlement. He just states the obvious. He says, I know that you have the power. And if you're willing, you could cleanse me. As if he's saying, you know what? I, I know I don't matter I know you don't have to do anything with me or to me. You owe me nothing, Jesus, but perhaps you will be merciful to me. Now, what does Jesus do? What does he do to him? He touches him. He touches the leper. Perhaps the first human contact this man has had in decades. Jesus didn't have to touch him. In the next story, Jesus heals someone who's far away. Jesus can heal without touching. And yet here Jesus does the unthinkable thing. He touches 
a leper. Nothing would have been more revolting or more disgusting in that day than touching someone with leprosy. And yet Jesus is not repulsed. He touches him and he heals him. And in touching him, Jesus brings him out of the company of dead men into the community of life. He restores him to fellowship. He returns him to the life of his people. Sickness and uncleanness don't spread to Jesus in a way that makes Jesus unclean. Life and healing spread out from Jesus to the sick. And notice that Jesus has the authority to heal and to cleanse this impurity, but he's also a man under authority himself. Look at verse four. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So Jesus, Jesus is not a revolutionary He's not a reactionary who's here just to turn everything upside down in society. He's not here to tear society apart. There is an order here to his father's law, and there is a prescription for how things are supposed to be done. And if you have been healed from leprosy, God's law says you need to go to the priest, you need to show yourself, you need to offer a sacrifice, and you need to have the priest declare that you're restored to society. And so Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And so he says, go do what the law says to do. Go obey so that you can be fully restored to participation in the life of the covenant community. Now, as you read this, I, I bet there are times where you have felt like you could uh, uh, relate to the leper. You have felt like an outcast you have felt like an outsider as if there are things you just can't enjoy. Those things are for other people. Those things are not for me or that you don't belong or that you don't fit in some way. You're on the outside looking in. We often feel like outsiders in situations where we're not really outsiders. We do that to ourselves. We make ourselves feel that way. We convince ourselves that we're lepers. But here, Jesus shows us that he doesn't have any outcasts. He, in his kingdom, there are no separations of ceremonial impurities. There's no persona non grata. Everyone who comes to him for healing and for life can be confident that he will accept them. No one is too yucky. No one is too ugly. No one is too shameful. No one is too guilty. No one is too dirty. Nothing you have ever done, nothing that has ever been done to you, nothing you have ever been and nothing that you are can separate you from the complete healing and restoration and life that is in Jesus if you will humble yourself like this man if you will worship him and trust that he will restore you. You will have the same life and restoration and healing, cleansing that this man experienced. Right after this, Jesus meets another outsider as far as the Jewish world was concerned. <clears throat> There's a Gentile. It's not just any Gentile, a Roman soldier, a centurion from the army that has conquered and is presently oppressing the people uh, that, uh, of the land, the, the, uh, his Jewish brethren, Jesus' brethren. So we read about this centurion, verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. 
And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Like the leper, the centurion addresses Jesus as Lord. And the centurion clearly recognizes that Jesus is a man of authority. The Roman explains, I have a sick servant. And he pleads with Jesus to help. And Jesus says, yes, sure, I'll come to your house and I will heal him. But then the centurion says the oddest thing. He says, that's not necessary. You don't need to come to my house. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. That's not, that's not necessary at all. Just speak a word of healing and my servant will be healed. The centurion seems to recognize that Jesus is not doing magic tricks here. Jesus is not a witch doctor. He's not a charlatan. He's not, you know, some kind of faith healer that makes you look good for a few minutes in front of a crowd. And then a few minutes later, you're feeling just as bad as you were. Jesus isn't, he isn't doing tricks. The Roman believes that Jesus has real authority over sickness. And the Roman says as much. He recognized Jesus has the same amount of authority over sickness as he has over his soldiers. And so uh, he says, all you need to do, Jesus, is say the word and it will happen. And Matthew tells us, Jesus marveled. What, what did it take to surprise Jesus? What, what did it take for him to say, what? Are you serious? He, he marveled. The man, Jesus, was surprised. He was in awe of this man's comprehension. Nobody in Israel had put things together the way that this Roman had. This kind of faith, Jesus said, existed nowhere in Israel. And Jesus rejoiced that the centurion's faith was only a hint of the greater work that God was going to do through the Gentile nations, even when the sons of the promise, the sons of the kingdom, were going to be left outside because of their unbelief. It's statements like this from Jesus. When, when Jesus says, um, many will come from the east and west and they'll sit down and they'll rejoice in my kingdom. They'll come to the banquet while many sons of the kingdom are going to be left outside. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It, it's things like that. You wonder why the Pharisees and the Sadducees got so angry at Jesus, why all the scribes and, and priests were so angry at Jesus because of things like this. It's because he's saying this Roman is going to sit down in the middle of my kingdom and you're going to be left on the outside. Well, you can't have someone like that running around saying these things. It's highly offensive. And yet, what Jesus is saying is what the prophets have been saying all along, that all the nations, all the kingdoms, all the people, are gonna, they're going to flow into Zion and be discipled and, and, and eat at the king's table. Well, Jesus does just what the centurion trusts that he can do, which is speak healing, speak a word, and the servant would be healed. And he is. The authority of Jesus is not limited by territorial boundaries, by social boundaries. It's not even limited by time or space. He can speak a word and heal. Life and healing are at his command without limits. 
Let's keep reading. Verse 14. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. When the evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And when Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave command to depart to the other side. In the middle of all these public displays of his power over sickness, there's this little account a short story of private healing. Um, Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. And when Jesus heals her, there's no publicity, there's no crowd to watch, there's no one to comment. It's just a simple matter of an old woman with a fever. That's not exactly a a movie of the week illness. That's that's not exactly this big, fantastic, dramatic illness. Um, No, a fever could be pretty serious in the ancient world, but but it's it's not super dramatic which says something about who Jesus is and what he's doing with this, with this healing ministry. He's not the kind of man who's only going to do something if it brings him notoriety and praise. In fact, he told the leper, don't tell anybody about this. Just go to the priest and show yourself. He's, he's not looking for notoriety at this point. And he's the same man in private as he is in public. He'll do something in private. He'll do it in public. It doesn't matter. He's the same either way. And when he heals her, she jumps up and serves them. We assume there she jumps up and fixes them something to eat. She used the blessing of health that he gave her, the energy uh, to hop up and, and return the favor by serving Jesus and the disciples. Matthew tells us that many more people line up with various illnesses and demonic possessions And Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. When we think about the work of Jesus, we often think about his uh, taking on the death that we deserved. He absorbs the punishment due us. He takes on our sins. And that is all true. He does. He does all that. But, But Matthew's making another statement here by quoting Isaiah 53 at this point, and saying, not only does Jesus take on our sins, but he also takes on our infirmities. He takes on our sickness. He takes on our weakness. He takes our disease on himself so that he can bear it away. He bore our sins at the cross, but through his entire life, he is bearing all manner of disease and weakness. So when Jesus heals a leper, life flows out, but it's like the leprosy flows to Jesus. He takes it on, he bears it, and he destroys it with his holiness. He destroys the impurity with his cleanness. When Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, she gets health, He takes on the fever and he puts it away. You notice how often Jesus is physically exhausted after days of healing and he needs to to get some rest. Um, um, He's taking on all this suffering. Remember in Luke's gospel, when the sick woman touches the hem of his garment, what does Jesus say? I feel like power has gone out from me. That's what what he said. Um, Now, uh, it's kind of an exchange. Something's going out and something is coming to him. Isaiah says he takes on, he bears our sickness. Now, I'm not trying to get into the mechanics of, 
of the healing properties of Jesus at all. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm underscoring this work, however, of Jesus in, in enduring human suffering, in taking sickness and weakness on himself so that he is truly a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, which means that there is nothing, there is nothing that you will ever bear or experience or hurt from or suffer through that Jesus has not entered into that suffering himself. Uh, there is nothing you are going through. There is no suffering that you will bear that Jesus has not borne and will not bear with you. He is not disconnected from your suffering. He is present with you in it. And what grieves you brings him grief. And he bears all of this without sin. He takes it on himself without complaining, without turning to idols, without bitterness, without cursing God. The way that he suffers is pleasing to his father, which means that in Christ, your response to suffering and your formation through suffering may also be pleasing to the father. Only in Christ, not apart from him. If you do not carry your sickness to Jesus and ask him for his healing and for his strength and for his spirit to, to uphold you, if you do not carry your sickness to Jesus, if you do not carry your sin to Jesus to ask him to lift it off of you and to forgive you, if you do not carry it to Jesus, you have to bear it on your own and it will crush you. It will kill you. You cannot carry it on your own. Only Jesus can absorb it. Only his shoulders are big enough to carry all of it. Well, Jesus wanted to leave from here and he wanted to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So we pick up in verse 18. Uh, Jesus saw the great multitudes about him. He gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. There are these men who want to follow Jesus, but he's up front with the cost of discipleship. He said, you don't know what you're getting into. You don't know what you're signing up for. There's a scribe, a man who's educated in the law, who says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus warns him and says, you're not going to have a comfortable life if you come follow me. There's a, there's a lot of things you're used to that you're going to have to get used to not having if you're going to follow me. Don't get so caught up with the emotion and the excitement of what's going on here that you fail to count the cost of discipleship, that you are failing to see the self-discipline that's going to be required of you, not to mention the increasing opposition once we get closer to Jerusalem. Don't think that following me is going to bring you any kind of earthly acclaim or glory. We don't know what that man responded with. We don't know what he said. We just hear the response of Jesus. And then there's a second man, and Jesus' response to him might sound even more shocking, more harsh. A man says, I, I want to follow you, Jesus, but wait, wait, let me go back home and bury my father first. And Jesus won't have it. He says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. If you're going to follow me, you have to come right now. If you go back home, 
you're not coming with me. There's an urgency to the mission of Jesus, and he requires 100% allegiance from his disciples. If I let you go home and I let you make funeral arrangements, then the next thing, you're going to have some other pressing business that's going to keep you away, and there's going to be something behind that. There's always going to be some excuse for why you can't join me in my mission. You think you've got all the time in the world. You don't. Uh, There's this urgency here. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, follow me now. Come with me. I can't have people who are split. I can't have people who are divided between me and something else. I require all of your loyalty. Now, what would have made Jesus's words even more controversial is that in the Jewish mindset, there's no greater responsibility that anybody has than their responsibility to their family and to their parents. And Jesus is saying, forget it. Leave them. That old family is dead. That old way is dead. Come join the new family. Come here and join with me in life. These are short conversations on the way to the boat. And Jesus is trying to get on the boat and get across the water. And he finally gets there in verse 23. Now, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. So the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? This past summer, we studied the prophet Jonah, a prophet who was asleep below decks. When there was a storm on the water, that prophet was going away from his mission And his sleep was a sleep of indifference to his peril, indifference to his disobedience, indifference to what was going on around him. Here we have a faithful prophet sleeping through a storm, exhausted from many days of ministering and healing and teaching and bearing infirmities. But this is the sleep of one who's not going to be harmed by the storm. This is the sleep of the one who is the master of the wind and the waves and the sea. He formed the world from water with the wind of his spirit. There's nothing here that's going to affect him. He alone can bring peace and calm to the roaring sea. I love how it says when they woke him up, he he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea. It's like he got up out of bed, he stood on the deck of the ship, and he said, hey, cut it out. Yeah, you, I'm talking to you, wind, stop it. Sea, calm down, knock it off. He rebuked them. It's not, Mark says, uh, he says, peace, be still. But, but he didn't whisper that. Uh, he, he didn't just say, peace, be still. He rebuked the winds and the sea. He shouts, he rebukes the storm and it obeys. He rebukes the sea and it stops. And Matthew says there was a great calm like it had never been storming before. The disciples were astonished. Who can do this? No man can do this. I wonder what they were asking him to do when they said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Maybe help us hold the boat together and get it to the shore. Or maybe somehow uh, just save us if we fall in the water. We just need you to be awake and see what's going on. But he comes out and with his word, he stops the storm and it obeys. No man can do this. In our day, in our time, we can watch the storms form off the South Atlantic and off the coast of Africa. Uh, We we can track them as they come up into the Gulf. We can track them up the Eastern seaboard, but we can't do anything to stop them. We know they're coming, but we can't curb them. We can't redirect them. We can't dissolve them. 
try to rebuke the storm, it's not going to listen to you. Did you stand on your deck on Friday and say, hey, cut it out? Did it work? It, it didn't. I, I know it didn't because our power was knocked out, right? I mean, it, it, didn't, it didn't respond. Um, the disciples know that only God has this power to speak to creation and to command it as Jesus did. He's the only one who has authority over creation this way. And when Jesus shows up, even the weather has to acknowledge his authority. There's one more short adventure in chapter 8 when they get to the other side of the sea into Gentile territory. We're going to read this and we'll wrap it up. Verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. So when they'd come out, they went into the herd of swine and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. So he got into a boat, crossed over and came to his own city. Think of that great wild storm at sea that we just read about, such that it was lapping the sides of the, of the boat, that terrible wind and the waves battering this little helpless ship. Think of that storm and imagine that same kind of turmoil going on in the head and the heart of a human being, that storm cloud of anger and disordered thoughts and disordered imaginations and emotions, all kinds of irrational anxieties raging inside of these men. How equally helpless these men were under the influence of the demons that have taken over their lives. Matthew says these men were exceedingly fierce, unimaginably violent and destructive. Nobody could get past them. They were blocking the road. These men, nobody wanted anything to do with them, couldn't, couldn't get near them. And just as Jesus calmed the storm on the sea, so he calms the storm in the heads and hearts of these men. When he shows up, when Jesus shows up, the demons shriek and howl at the presence of Jesus. Do you think demons are scary? Does, that, does, the, um, does your mental image or the imagination of demons, does, does, does that, is that frightening? Is that a little nightmarish? Okay, what are the demons afraid of? <laughs> the demons are afraid of Jesus. The demons are, if, if demons are scary or, or, or horrific to you, the demons are afraid of him. And when Jesus encounters them, they know that he's going to cast them out. So they make this weird request to be cast into the herd of swine that's over there grazing. You know, you're in Gentile territory because they're keeping pigs. Jesus agrees to this odd request, and he just says one word. He says, go, and the demons proceed to enter the herd of swine and drive them straight off the cliff into the sea, the same sea that Jesus has just calmed. They, they haven't escaped the jurisdiction of King Jesus. The demons are all about self-destruction and, and introduced to the limited brains and bodies of these pigs, that work of self-destruction is rather swift this, this herd of swine running into the sea is just a preview of the greater judgment to come. All evil 
all demons, everything unclean is going to be driven into a lake, a lake of fire. When the reign of Jesus is established, all evil departs. What's curious, though, is that the people who live in this town who have been terrorized by these demon-possessed men, they don't exactly want Jesus hanging around. They don't want everything that Jesus brings with him. They come out and they meet Jesus and they beg him to keep moving, keep it going, depart, get out of here. This kind of power and purity and authority over demons and this power over sin is intimidating. Maybe if he hangs around, he's going to drive out something we want to hold on to. Maybe he's going to make us get rid of something we don't want to lose. So they don't want his presence. They don't want his influence hanging around. So they say, keep it moving. And he does. He gets back in the boat and we're going to pick up from there next week. Here in these chapters, we're getting some action. We've seen Jesus on the move confronting the powers of darkness and ignorance and suffering, overruling all of these lesser authorities. For the entire Sermon on the Mount, we sat with Jesus' disciples listening. We heard, which is critical. It's essential. It's vital that we hear him speaking, that our minds and hearts are reordered with the truth. That's important. But now we're in the obey part of the story. We hear and obey. And now as Jesus gets to work, he demonstrates in these events what it means to follow him. You follow Jesus and you're going to be put into contact with the outcasts. Following Jesus, imitating him means you're going to have to touch the ostracized. You're going to have to touch the outsider, the outcast, that you're going to have to help restore them to life in the community of his kingdom. You're going to deal with people you might rather not have to deal with. Roman centurions, the face of opposition, the face of tyranny, the face of occupation, the example of the worst kind of, of distortion of authority. You have to treat him like a human, just like Jesus did. The disciples get on a boat with Jesus and they find out immediately, we followed him into mortal danger. He warns these guys on the way to the boat and says, You're not, I don't think you really want to follow me. He warns them and he gets on the boat and then they find out, yeah, this is not a casual decision. This way is going to be hard, just as Jesus said it was. It was hard for them and it is challenging for us because following Jesus, hearing and obeying him puts us in opposition to everyone and everything who rejects Jesus and his authority. They hate him, and so they take it out on you. You take it personally. You think they're treating me poorly. They're mistreating me. They're not. They hate him. It's his authority that they are opposing. They are rejecting him, not you. But it puts us in danger. Following Jesus leads us into danger because it puts us in opposition to everything that opposes Jesus and his rule. And as we follow him, we find ourselves in the middle of trouble because sinful men resist his authority. Any whiff of the kingly reign of Jesus is nauseating to wicked men, like the demons who cry out, like the people in town who want to keep him moving along. His presence is frightful. They want nothing to do with it. We don't want you ruling over us, changing everything. His presence is unthinkable for the disciples in the boat. His absence was what concerned them. Where is he? We need him to rise up and rule over this chaotic situation. The disciples 
are, are, are fearful of his absence. The wicked are fearful of his presence. This is the desire of every disciple that he would be present and that he would reign, that, that we don't have uh, segmented territories. We don't have partitioned um, areas of our lives or our hearts or our minds or priorities or our motives. We don't have these little holdouts, these little places where we say, we want you to reign over all of this, Jesus, but not this, not now, not here, uh, not, not this. We, we don't have holdouts because we know his authority is good over everything. His authority heals and it restores and it revives. His authority brings order and all kinds of blessing. His authority causes the demons and everything that plagues us to flee. He absorbs the suffering and he imparts comfort. That's why we want Jesus to reign over everything all the time. His reign is not oppressive. It is life. You know why I want Jesus to be recognized as king over everything all the time? Look at how he reigns. Look at how he rules. Behold his merciful power and his just authority. That's what Matthew is showing us here. And we'll continue to reflect and meditate on these things. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we pray that you would bring all nations under the rule of your Son so that we may rest under his merciful kingdom of peace. Give Jesus the dominion from sea to sea that all may bow before him, that kings may fall down to him and peoples may serve him. We first pray that he would reign over our minds and our hearts, our tongues, our hands, and our feet, that he would reign in our homes, that he would reign in our businesses and in our schools, and especially that his church may hear and obey him in all things that he has revealed to her. Father, we pray that you would do this mighty work by your spirit for the glory of King Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.